Hello, you're listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroud. How many times have you had questions after the homily? How often have you wished that Father had spoken on this topic or that topic or thought, wouldn't it be great if I could just sit down with him and talk about all the stuff that didn't quite make it into the homily? Well, this podcast is for you. We'll talk about topics ranging from literature to politics, from church teaching to church architecture. If it's relevant to Catholics, to their daily lives, to their journey to heaven, it's on our agenda. Whether you're in every Sunday in the pew or a Christmas and Easter, or maybe you can't even remember the last time you went to Mass, we're here for you. So Father Daniel Scheitz, the pastor, among other things, in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, at St. Vincent de Paul Catholic Church here in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Father Dan, it's great to be back with you again. Great to be here, Chris. So today's topic, I know, is one that's very near and dear to you, as the expression goes, the Oratory of St. Mary Magdalene here on the campus. You know, in thinking about today, I, I quickly looked up a few things, and some of our listeners might be shocked to learn that St. Mary Magdalene's the the patron of a lot of interesting things, the contemplative life, converts, glove makers, that one surprised me, hairdressers, <laughs> penitent sinners, I guess as opposed to the non-penitent sinners, pharmacists, and women, among other things. And her feast day is July 22nd, just passed for us recently. So before we talk about the oratory and how it came by its name, let's talk a little bit about the oratory itself. Tell us how this whole thing came to be? Well, when I was a seminarian assigned to the parish in around 1999, the current church was being built. And in the middle of the old graveyard, there was an old church building that looked to be closed. And it also looked like it was being used for or something else. I remember a yellow slide coming out of the windows, and I, I found out that this was the the haunted castle. And and at that moment, it just came to me to say, Lord, if you ever make me pastor of this parish, I'll see to it that you're worshipped and adored on this spot forever. I just felt this surge of love in my heart that that, that place needed to be a center of prayer and in a certain way needed to be restored to its original purpose. Now, by the time I became pastor, that building had already been torn down. But as soon as Bishop Rhodes sat me down and asked if I would be pastor of St. Vincent's, I knew at that very moment that, that this was the fulfillment of that promise. This was my mission. And if you can picture it, we were as, as the priests of the diocese on retreat. And a bishop asked to speak with me about moving from my parish of Queen of Peace. And we couldn't find a room at St. Martin de Porres Parish in Syracuse, except for the kindergarten catechesis of the Good Shepherd room. So I distinctly remember Bishop Rhodes sitting on the smallest <laughs> chair that could hold a human being and I sitting on another one of those chairs. And, and so I, I felt very much like a child. And yeah, it was just a, 
it was a beautiful moment where where the past and the future really opened out in the present. Now, did you ever attend mass at that older church building? No, because that older building, which was built in 1904, was closed in 1968. Mm. And at that moment, the parishioners moved into what came to be called the gymnasium church. Sure. And so the parish had that as its church from 1968 until the year 2000. And, and it was deliberately designed so that as the parish grew and outgrew that building, it would become a gymnasium. So it's attained its destiny now. <laughs> so when I came as pastor, that 1904 building had been torn down and there was just a, a storage shed in the center right. of the graveyard. Now, so it, it sounds like you're saying in a way, you didn't have a certain affection for that building just for that location, you might say. There was an affection for the building as consecrated to the glory of God. And in fact, it's been a really beautiful task to go hunting down some of the, the sacred items from that building. So, for example, the front two pews in the oratory are original <laughs> to the old church. We have the communion rail from the old, old church. The bell that's currently in the oratory bell tower, that is from an even earlier church at St. Vincent's from 19, or I'm sorry, 1861. Mm. So the, that church building was built at the outset of the Civil War. So there has been in the oratory this attempt to recover items that had been used for the greater glory of God and then for all sorts of reasons gotten scattered to the winds. Put aside. Wow, that's remarkable. But fundamentally, the oratory, it's a new building. Mm. But in its architecture, there are aspects of it that evoke the 1904 structure. Sure. So you've used the word several times, and so I just have to ask, because I bet I'm not the only listener who wonders about the word oratory. I mean, what what does oratory mean? Why is it the Mary Magdalene Oratory and not just that cute chapel over there at the corner. Right. So the word oratory has at its root the Latin word for prayer, ora. And in the early church, oratories were those buildings built above the catacombs as places the early Christians could could gather before they went to visit their their loved ones buried buried down below. Now, the Eucharist was offered underground in the catacombs, not so much hiding from the authorities because the authorities knew where all those graveyards were, but those above-ground little church buildings called from the beginning oratories were just more convenient places for, for people to meet up and, and to pray. So in canon law, in the law that governs the church, those church buildings that are designated for prayer, for the celebration of the mass, but in a way that's more limited than a parish church, 
those places are are technically called oratories. Practically, it means the same thing as a chapel. So for example, the oratory doesn't have a baptismal font. It mm. doesn't have confessionals. Mm. Those would be features that would be required in an ordinary parish church building. So generally speaking, an, an oratory has to do with a place that serves a more specific type of prayer, which in the case of the Oratory of St. Mary Magdalene includes the celebration of the Mass. So the Eucharist is offered there every Friday in the late afternoon. Mm. Are there other, at least American, oratories of some significance that you think of when you're sort of looking at our oratory and invariably comparing it to uh, to other oratories? The first one that comes to mind as you ask the question is actually in Canada. It's the Oratory of St. Joseph. Oh. So St. Andre Bessette of the Congregation of Holy Cross asked that an oratory be built to the honor of St. Joseph, who took care of the Lord and Our Lady. In fact, he is, he, St. Andre Bessette, is featured in one of our oratory of St. Mary Magdalene windows mm -hmm. in honor of the Holy Cross priests who served at St. Vincent's in the 19th century. Well, I think that oratory in Canada is referenced in Father Calloway's a consecration to St. Joseph. Exactly. I think he references that several times. Yes. It's, it's sort of something that ought to be on every Catholic's bucket list. Yes. Know, to get to it's, see a, that. it's a beautiful pilgrimage destination. And it's probably the most well-known shrine to St. Joseph in the world. So you decided early on, it sounds like, that you were going to remake and better make and make over that, that corner area there. How did we get from that idea to the structure that stands there? How long did it take? What did you have to do? How did that go? Well, there's a short answer and a longer answer. <laughs> the The shorter answer is that it took about, about three years of planning, about one year of building, and then another year of, of furnishing. But I would trace it all the way back to the sandbox of my home in Highland, Indiana, because growing up every day, I would spend hours building sand castles and sand cathedrals. I had church and state going on in the, <laughs> in the backyard. And the architecture of that building is, is really meant to honor the, the legacy of faith of our ancestors, but, but in a way that, that is new. So in the center of the oratory above the altar are those words of Christ from the book of Revelation. Behold, I make all things new. And I've, I've had a palpable sense from the very beginning of this project that it's really primarily from the Lord. It, I mean, it's a love poem for God, but it's actually more a love poem from God. So I've just had an overwhelming sense that I'm just receiving something that heaven is offering. 
So during that that period of of planning and design, every night I would dream of nothing else uh, than different details of of what was what was going to be. And I spent hours and hours just thinking through on on my runs and on my time in the church praying of what the Lord wanted to give in this project. You know, I think it's impossible for anyone that's well, it's been in this oratory or, you know, on a grander scale, anyone that's been to Rome to not feel a sense of how architecture and space and, and art can influence you. And I think it's fair to say that's a, that's a fairly Catholic concept but speak a little bit to that idea that it's the space actually matters, that it, it sets you up for the right posture, so to speak. How does that play into our worship? Yes, it's very profound. And we can just start with the example of our own home. Most basically, our home is an expression of our soul. And at the same time, our home is meant to support our soul. And so in the case of a church, the church is the expression of, of the person and mission of Christ. And that's meant to support his person and mission in, in our life, in our worship. After all, at the heart of the Eucharist, at the, in the Mass, the conclusion of the Eucharistic prayer, we pray through him, with him, and in him. In the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours, Almighty Father, forever and ever. And so the, the church in its art and architecture is meant to be an expression of, of who, who Christ is and, and, and how, how he supports our life of prayer. Now that said, I grew up in the 1970s and 1980s, which in some respects were not necessarily the happiest years for Catholic <laughs> architecture. It tended to be more abstract and more spare. So a lot of buildings that had a simplicity to them that didn't exactly explicitly disclose the divine mysteries. And so in a sense, the art and architecture of the oratory by recovering a, a more traditional way of building in every single detail, the, the church is allowed to speak and, and the church reveals the, the whole drama of salvation. Growing up, I, I formulated three principles of, of what a Catholic church in its art and architecture should be. First of all, the building should be an icon of the redeemed cosmos before it's a, a meeting hall or, or a worship space. In other words, coming into that place, one should have a sense that one is entering heaven, not as leaving earth behind, but precisely as, as the redemption and transformation of earth. Secondly, the truly Catholic church building 
should reveal in its art and architecture that the worshiping community is larger than the visibly gathered assembly. It includes the angels and the saints. So at the Oratory of St. Mary Magdalene, there are representations of the angels and the saints everywhere. And then the third point, perhaps the most intriguing, is that every truly Catholic church building in its art and architecture should both evoke the questions and help answer the big picture, the, the whole history of salvation. A child should be able to walk in that building and ask all sorts of questions. What's that? Why is that there? And, and actually be helped to learn the vocabulary of, of our whole life of faith. So in the oratory, the Bible of the poor panels that mm. trace the life of Christ from the Annunciation to the Last Judgment and all the Old Testament prefigurations, the, the stained glass windows from the depictions of the saints to the, the different allusions to the Song of Songs, the passages from scripture that are inscribed on the walls, all of that is meant to provide a vocabulary of faith for the eyes and the heart to, to enter, enter the life of, of heaven on earth. I mean, as I hear you say that, you've, you know, in many ways, you've described the opposite of more recently built churches. And more recently means in the 70s and 80s, because in many cases, they were the opposite of that. As you said, it, you didn't get that sense of awe or that sense of place that's set aside. They, they kind of became vanilla and generic almost. Why? Do you, what do you think led to that architectural change? Well, there, I would say, are a number of, of complicating factors. And I should add, just as a preliminary, that I, I didn't intend for the oratory to be oppositional or to make some <laughs> ideological statement. Reclaiming the fullness of our faith speaks for itself. So it, it it doesn't need to argue with anybody. It It is what it is. And I've had more than one person tell me after walking in that place for the first time, this is the most beautiful place I've ever seen. Just just the instinctive reaction of, of gratitude and, and joy and just being overwhelmed in a, in a good way, that, that's amazing. But to your question, I think with the passing of certain architectural styles, especially styles associated with the sensibilities of different immigrant groups, mm. there, there was really this desire, especially in the United States, of Catholics to assimilate. Mm. Whereas in the past, when people came to our country, so think, you know, 19th century, early 20th century, there was a desire to bring the artistic traditions of the home country with them. So the Italians building Italian-looking churches, sure. French people building French churches. That, at a certain point in the 20th century, became, in the minds of, of some, more of an embarrassment. Mm. 
I also think that after World War II, in particular, there was a whole generation of, of engineers and designers that, that actually were trained in, in things that were just more functional in a utilitarian way. And, and these people, when they came to design buildings, they, they brought that sensibility to it. And I, I find it fascinating. I've heard this from architects that in the mid 20th century, there was an overconfidence in how buildings would be built to last only maybe a generation and then be torn down. Whereas in the past, a building like a church building was, was meant to last far more than a hundred years. But there was a kind of mid 20th century overconfidence in the new, the modern, that, that just led to a lot of building on the cheap. And, and even with the idea that it's going to be torn down anyway. Wow. I also think maybe just another reason at the second Vatican council, there was a desire, a deep desire to further the reunion of all Christians. Mm-hmm. And even though it wasn't the intention of the council fathers necessarily, it wound up happening that there was a kind of least common denominator approach to, for example, the, the elements of the mass. There was this kind of attempt to, to simplify things in a way that our separated brothers and sisters would, would understand. And in that attempt to focus on what was perceived as the essential, there, there really was a kind of iconoclasm that got rid of a lot. Mm. And I, I remember early on in my seminary and in my priesthood, just hearing from people the, the violence done to their churches in the late 1960s, 1970s, like jackhammers taken to mm. altars, the rubble put in the garbage heap. If, if we're honest with ourselves, there, there has to be a historical reckoning for that iconoclasm. I, I repeat, the, the oratory project is fundamentally non-ideological, but it is principled. And any, any organization that is ignorant of, let alone ashamed of its past and doesn't recognize the past as the living roots of the future is, is going to be a, a dying organism. And the intention of the, the oratory is to be a living proposal of the faith in all of its detail for future generations. And I think we're seeing on the part of younger people today, uh, a much uh, deeper, simpler desire for the fullness of of the tradition. It's interesting. I'm certainly no student of architecture and I hope no architects are listening, but um, I mean, it sounds like you're describing how architecture follows or mirrors culture. I don't know which comes first, but, um, but they're so related. And then, and then now you see newer churches being built as some would say to look old, even though it's not old or new, it just is. 
But, you know, maybe that look of the oratory is the perfect look that's timeless, that, right. that has no style. So instead of attempting for a new church building to represent the age in which it was built alone, you know, the 1980s, for example, that quickly becomes dated an attempt to use the classical forms that have proven themselves over the centuries. That that's really wise. I, I remember my last church, the architect who built it specialized in asymmetry. And so there, there, there really aren't many right angles in this church at all. And the problem among others with the roof is that all of the, the snow is shunted down these oblique angles so that it comes off the roof at precisely the entrance and egress points of the church. <laughs> so when you ask yourself, well, why do churches traditionally have a certain type of roof? Because over time, one discovers the best way to keep weather out. Now, that's a superficial observation, but it's important. A deeper ob observation, I, I just got back from a pilgrimage to Germany in which I visited the studio of a stained glass company called Meyer of Munich. And it was fascinating to tour this place, which goes back to the 19th century. And so just picture, let's just say early 1900s, there would have been hundreds of artisans working to build and beautify Catholic churches around the world. Mm. So offices in multiple cities, Paris, London, New York, Munich, and there would be a whole team of professors of Christian art history who would be the consultants on the design of windows and altars. And so when a, a patron like a parish pastor would say, you know, the name of my parish is uh, Holy Rosary Parish and we want to add some windows. This team would, would have a working knowledge of the whole Catholic iconographic tradition surrounding, in this case, the Holy Rosary, and then pass those ideas, having worked with the pastor, onto a team that specialized in in stained glass. And so some of the workers specialized in painting faces, others of them just painting flesh, others painting foliage, others painting lettering, uh, still others drapery. And, and the fruit of this, this collaboration of these hundreds of people is this this burst of, of creativity that is always expressing itself in new ways. So Meyer of Munich, for example, had catalogs where people could order things, but 
because the orders were so personal, they were always being adapted. And in fact, if, if you go to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome today, that window of the Holy Spirit in the very back of the church behind the main altar in what's called the altar of the chair, that stained glass window was produced by Meyer Studio of Munich. So the same studio that did our oratory windows did the windows of, of St. Peter's. But now Meyer Studio, most of its work is public civic projects precisely because there are so few new churches being built with an attentiveness to that level of, mm. of detail. So the stained glass windows in the oratory are spectacular. Uh, they're all in now. And I, I have a feeling there's a story behind every one of them. Um, but how did, how did they come to be? Uh, and then what's the connection with you getting to visit um, where they were made? Sure. So the saints that are depicted really presented themselves to me in prayer. And they all have something to do with the history of our parish. I've already mentioned St. Andre Bassett, his connection with Holy Cross. St. Gianna Beretta Mola was a Catholic physician. She, in a sense, represents all the different healthcare facilities in our parish boundaries, including, I would add, the Holy Family Birth Center. <laughs> and Louis and Zaley Martin, the parents of St. Therese of Lisieux, are there to represent the, the Martin family, members of whom are buried in our graveyard mm. to show that continuity of grace. Father Stanley Rother, who was martyred in Guatemala and studied for the priesthood at Mount St. Mary's in Emmitsburg, he represents the, the young men from our diocese studying at that seminary for the priesthood. Saint or uh, Blessed uh, Mother Maria Theresa Bonzel, she's the founders of the Sisters of St. Francis of Perpetual Adoration. That was the group of sisters that taught me in grade school, and they have a presence in our diocese and elsewhere. And then on the other wall, Josephine Bakita, who was an enslaved woman from the Sudan who received her freedom, became Catholic. She represents the Civil War soldiers in our graveyard who fought for the, the freedom of the enslaved. Next to her is St. Juan Diego. He represents the, the, the indigenous, the first peoples who lived on our, our land. Also, he was responsive to Our Lady's request that a, a shrine be built so that the Lord could be worshipped in Mexico City. So in that sense, uh, Juan Diego and Andre Bissette, one built a shrine in Mexico, one in Canada, and we built one in the States. The central eastern window of the oratory of Vincent de Paul and Louise de Marillac, they were collaborators. Obviously, Vincent is the patron of our parish. Louise de Marillac represents people who've lost loved ones, and especially in the parish graveyard, as, as the new burials take place, so often it's spouses burying their, their loved one, and it's, it's meant to be a consolation to mm -hmm. them. That leaves us two left, two saints in the windows, 
One is Pier Giorgio Frassati, who represents the young people of our parish. He was a member of the St. Vincent de Paul Society in Italy, early 20th century. And then St. Clair of Assisi, who was cloistered. She represents the people who are just praying in a hidden way in place. I, I should also point out that the oratory windows all have foliage and trees that are mentioned in the Song of Songs because the whole oratory is meant to, to show how that love poem at the center of the Bible is fulfilled in Christ's risen encounter with Mary Magdalene. So if, if you start on the Western side in the back, you'll see in that window an almond tree to represent when Jesus was no larger than an, a little almond in his, his mother's womb. Then it moves to a fig tree. Jesus's public ministry when he mentions the fig trees several times. And then toward the front of the oratory on either side, there's a myrrh tree and a frankincense tree. So as you look at the front, what do the Magi bring to adore Jesus, but gold, frankincense, and myrrh? the trees of adoration. Then on the other side, the Eastern side in the middle is a palm tree during the passion, the palm branches strewn at the feet of Jesus. And then finally the pomegranate tree, that fruit is the symbol of the resurrection because when the fruit is ripe, it, it bursts open. In the back of the oratory are two olive trees behind the two Josephs, Joseph of Nazareth, Joseph of Arimathea, in both the Old Testament uh, and in the book of Revelation, there's reference made to the olive, olive trees. And then at the very front of the oratory, most beautifully, is the apple tree. So all those trees that surround the adorer remind us that when we come to this place, we're in paradise. We, we get to be with Jesus in paradise, as he promised on the tree of life, the cross. Wow. Now... Among all of those saints, among all of the saints, how did St. Mary Magdalene find her way in, into the oratory? It's a really funny story because <laughs> for as much detail as came to me easily right away, I puzzled for months over what the Lord wanted to name this place of prayer. And I, I went through all of my favorite saints and none of them, none of them seemed to fit in fact, the, it seemed too much for some of them. It sounds crazy to say that, but that's the sense I had. And then I thought, well, maybe it's particular mystery of the Lord's life or the Blessed Mother's life. And all the, all the good ones were already taken by buildings in our diocese. Bishop Rhodes wanted this, this place of prayer to have a new name. And so finally, when I was talking with the architect one day, just describing how I thought the architecture should look. We were talking about rounded, they're called oriels, but kind of rounded rooms on the front. One is the, the sacristy, one is the restroom. And at a certain point he just said, so father, what you'd like to build is a feminine building. And I laughed and I said, that's exactly what I'd like to build, a feminine church in terms of its, its architecture. And at that moment, the name of Mary Magdalene came to me. And I thought, 
oh, this is obvious. She was the first one to go to the place of burial in tears. She's the first one to leave the place of burial rejoicing that she's seen the risen Lord. And this, this oratory is going to be built in a graveyard. So it has to testify in the most fundamental way to the resurrection of the dead. And that was it. And then the more I explained it to people, only in a second moment did it dawn on me that she was freed from seven demons. Mm. The gospels say that Christ freed her. And I, I just thought of, of all of the people who looked at that deconsecrated church as they drove by all those years and how this new proposal of faith was a new start. Like, like Mary Magdalene received this new freedom, this new, this new beginning. Because and doesn't, it, doesn't tradition sort of hold that her life prior to encountering Christ was far from perfect? Well, the tradition often links her with, for example, the, the sinful woman who anoints Jesus, mm. his feet with her tears, dries them with her hair. But, but actually in the Gospels, there's, there's no mention of why she was possessed by the seven demons. And I actually think that's really important because some of the evil in our life is our own responsibility. It's our own bad choices. We put ourselves in, in compromised positions, but our experience of evil is also suffering what, what other people's bad decisions are. And Mary Magdalene, as far as I could see, represents not just sinners in need of redemption, but also those who are sinned against. And I've, I've just already heard in the testimonies of people who pray at the oratory that, that they found freedom from, from real evil that they have suffered at the hands of, of other people. So I, I, I think that the gift of Mary Magdalene's life is, is richer than simply identifying mm-hmm. herself with like any particular sinful woman. Mm-hmm. That's remarkable. And then she gets to be the one that Christ chooses to, to be the first. Yes. And in the, the tympanum, the half circle mosaic outside of the oratory over the main door, there she is. And her, her hands are in the, what's called the orons position, the, the prayer position of Christians in the early church, kind of like hands outstretched on the cross. And in her halo are the words that she speaks in the gospel, I have seen the Lord. And so everybody who goes inside the oratory is entering her prayer and is able to see in the Eucharist, the Lord risen from the dead. So when we leave the oratory, her words become our own. We have seen the Lord. And that spirit of invitation that she received to welcome others to come and see, just like she ran and, and got Peter and, and John the Beloved, that's, that's what we have to do. It's not just a question of looking at the Lord for ourselves, but 
but being sent by him as she was to, to bring other people to him. Now that's remarkable. It's such an amazing place. It, it is an adoration chapel, a perpetual adoration chapel. And so that leads me to ask you some things about adoration. Because I'll bet, again, I'm not the only listener who has struggled with the idea of adoration. Or maybe maybe not the idea, but the doing. If a year ago someone had said to me, would you fill in for me a holy hour at the adoration chapel? I would think, oh my word, couldn't I do something else instead? <laughs> because the idea of going into a quiet place, beautiful as it is, and sitting for an hour would mean I'd be sleeping for 50 minutes probably. But yet it's gotten so much easier for me uh, as I've spent more time in our adoration chapel. Speak a little to adoration and what's available and, and you know, maybe the five easy steps to become a great adorer. <laughs> yes. How does one get good at adoration? Sure. Oh, there's so many things to be said. First of all, there's no bad way to do it because <laughs> even the apostles fell asleep <laughs> in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus had to, had to say, you know, couldn't you stay awake with me <laughs> one hour? So Jesus knew their limitations. He knew they were overwhelmed. So even the attempt is already the beginning of the victory. Second, it's really a communal project. It, it, it's a reminder that none of us ever is meant to pray simply alone. So when we, we come to the oratory, there's always somebody there ahead of us. And when we leave the oratory, there's always going to be somebody following us. And that's a great comfort to know that our prayer is prepared by someone else and it's the foundation for someone else's prayer. So a perpetual adoration chapel can only exist as, as the effort of, of a whole group of, of people. And, and our being there at any given time, especially committing to one hour a week, it allows the oratory to be open for whoever comes at that time. I would say in general, we are more weak than most human beings who've ever lived because the technology that we have has so sped up our lives mm -hmm. and has so fooled us into thinking that we are just emperors uh, who can do so much in ever shorter bits of time that we, perhaps alone of all the human beings in history, we look at an hour as a burden, which most people would have experienced as just nothing at all. So, you know, a farmer in the 19th century, you know, mm. an hour in the field. What, what would that be? Not even a warm-up. No. <laughs> so, in a sense, it's, it's a place and a time to allow ourselves to be trained into what it is to be a human being. Mm. And, and to somebody who would say, well, I, I just can't do that. I, um, you know, my attention span, et cetera. I would say it is time to acknowledge that one has an addiction to the gadgets, mm. an addiction, capital A addiction. And what do I mean by that? If during the day you find yourself 
compulsively pulling that little computer out of your pocket and staring at it like a zombie. And as you're doing so, if you're saying to yourself, I hate this, why am I doing this? I, I don't even know what I'm looking for on this. And yet I feel compelled to do this. Like we're not even talking about television or, you know, the big computers anymore. We're just talking about the gadget in the pocket. Adoration at this point in the history of salvation is a form of detox. Mm. It, it's learning how to retrain the eyes and the heart to, to rest. And that can involve different exercises of prayer. So some people come to the oratory and they do spiritual reading, mm-hmm. including reading of scripture. Other people, they come to the rosary and they use it as a time to, to pray the rosary, calm their mind down. Sometimes people use a portion of the time just to recollect what they've been living for the past few days or the past week. And then to use that, that time as, as a time of asking the Lord what the next steps of faith are going to be. Some people bring a list of things to think about and talk to the Lord about. So I, I would say that there's great variety in what can happen between oneself and the Lord in any given hour. But at the, at the most fundamental level, we should be looking at him and allowing him to look at us. We should be speaking to him in our heart about what's most essential. And we should also be allowing him to speak to us. That's one of the reasons for all the different uh, imagery and words in the oratory. I still remember a prisoner coming to me, just so grateful. She said, um, oh, I love that passage that's over the icon to the right of the altar from the Song of Songs. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Behold, you are beautiful. And she said, Father, whenever I come to the oratory, that's the first thing I say to Jesus. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Behold, you are beautiful. And she said, and that's the first thing he says to me. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Behold, you are beautiful. And so to start the holy hour with that, like saying that to the Lord and receiving that from the Lord, I'd I'd start there. I mean, that sounds like great advice for our novice or expert alike. And I, I would imagine the greatest obstacle is ourselves to, to getting in there. But there's no wrong way to do it. Is that fair to say? All you have to do is open the door. Come and see. Well, uh, Father Dan, thank you for this discussion uh, of the Oratory of St. Mary Magdalene. It's been delightful. And listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of After the Homily as much as I have. I've had the privilege of, uh, of sitting here Uh, with Father Dan. I hope you'll plan on joining us regularly for future episodes. Are there topics that you'd like to hear about from Father Dan? Or do you have a question you'd like him to speak to? We would love to hear from you. If you do, you can email us at church at saintv.org and type after the homily in the subject line. You can message me at 260 
450-8878 and start the message with After the Homily. So thanks again for listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt.